here's what I never understand. Like two seconds, literally two seconds before I press that button to go live, my nose runs or I have to use the bathroom or I start sneezing or coughing. It's this weird thing where my body's like, oh, we're going to go do something. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna like talk for a while or engage with something. We better just take up time and space and make you feel nervous about being late. It, it happens every time. It doesn't happen for client meetings. It doesn't happen when I'm just making stuff. It doesn't even really happen all the time when I'm just recording podcasts randomly. It's just now. It's just on Tuesdays. It's just when I do the chat. I don't understand. I don't know what causes it. It, it just is. So I have now done all the things I need to do. I have prepared myself as best I can. And here we are for the writer's chat. With no great preamble and no other great introduction, let's just get started, shall we? All right. Just remember what I've taught you. Here we are. So, hello, everybody. Hi, and welcome to the Writer's Chat for November the 7th. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, planners, dance enthusiasts, hat wearers, anybody who can appreciate nachos, like a really good plate of nachos, uh, people who are willing to learn how to pronounce words by watching YouTube videos, handkerchief makers, uh, anybody who remembers to do a thing at the store while they're supposed to be there remembering, oh, wait, one more item. Anybody who's ever had to navigate through a complicated phone message system in order to just to get to talk to a person for two seconds and then realize that you didn't need to do that at all. Anybody who's ever tried to operate a subscription model for anything and really started to worry that the discount they give you to sign up really only is for that first purchase and then you wonder if you have the budget to sustain it long term. And most importantly, the comrades. Hi. Here we go. The writer's chat. This is, if, you've, if you're new here, this is the place to get answers for all your questions about writing and publishing and editing and marketing and being a writer and, and traditional publishing and self-publishing and writing anything. Any anything. doesn't have to be books. could be screenplays. could be theater plays. could be the sales copy for your Etsy store. Who knows? could be anything. You have questions. I'm John. Hi, it's my job to help you write better. I have answers. And today, I've got 13 questions from a number of people on a number of topics that I think are really, really going to help you. I think it's really going to make a difference. So, I'm excited to do this today. You ready to get started? Yeah? Good to go? Let's do it. 
Question number one. We are swinging for the fences right away. Question number one. Why can't I sit down and write like I used to? Well, I don't know if you know this, but time moves forward. And what you are currently doing, or what you're doing anytime you ask this question, where you try to hold yourself accountable to some kind of standard that used to be, or you hold yourself like accountable and then fault yourself for it, um, yeah, that's not helping you. You don't have to do that. The reason why you could sit down and write like you used to, chances are in that period of used to, whenever that might be, whether that was a year, two years, five years, ten years, whatever ago, you were different. You had different responsibilities, different focuses, different ways and things dividing up your time, different opportunities, and you were differently enthusiastic. Maybe you didn't know as much. Maybe you were just over eager. Maybe you just didn't care. Maybe you were blowing off this, that, or the other thing so that you could write. I don't know. But you wrote in these great giant bursts, or you wrote in these long, consistent periods every Saturday, every other Tuesday, whatever it might be. And you felt really good because you were being productive. And that's fine. It's good that you were being productive. That's important. But now, well, time moves forward. You're not the same person anymore. Maybe you've had some stress in your life. Maybe you've had some real setbacks in your life. Maybe you've had some real good opportunities. We always talk about this negatively, but it's also possible that just good stuff happened. Maybe you got married. Maybe you got engaged. Maybe you had a baby. Maybe you got a new job. Maybe you relocated to a different place. Maybe you, you know, decided to write a different thing. Maybe you got hired to write a different thing. Loads of different situations can come up to change our time and change our perspective and change our experience. And that can, all of those things can in turn sort of ripple outward and change the way we perceive our own writing. Because if you go back, right, let's ignore just for a minute. Let's just put the time stuff to the side. If you go back and look at your writing now, here's how you wrote today or last week versus here's how I wrote two years ago three years ago, whenever it is the used to period is, is your writing any better? Have you improved? Have you ever stopped to think that maybe one of the reasons why you were able to just sit down and write is because you didn't really know what you were doing and you were just kind of slapping everything together and whatever, it's fine because you didn't know any better. And that doesn't mean that gaining knowledge makes you worse. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's better when we're ignorant and it's better when we don't care. It's just that when we don't have the same focus, when we don't have the same access to time, when we're busier, when we're older, when we're tired, when we're stressed, of course it's not going to be like the way it was. Of course not. The thing to remember in this situation, when you feel this feeling, when you get frustrated, when you get angry at yourself, that, oh my God, I used to be able to do this. Why the hell can't I do it anymore? You're not at fault. You're not committing a crime. You're not breaking a rule. It's just how things go. Sometimes you write a lot well and quickly. Sometimes you write a lot quickly and it's garbage. Other times you just plug along. And all those factors, all those non-you things, whether it's, you know, time or money or space or if it's a you thing, it's how you think and how you feel and how you're stressed and how you got to put stuff to the side and how it was easier before because you weren't sweating this or you weren't constantly doing that. That's not your fault. It's not trying to 
ruin your writing. It's not like you always have to do it at this ideal maximum of maximum time and maximum minutes and maximum words. Because while that is utopic, that is an ideal thing, it is an unrealistic thing. And it is unrealistic for you to expect maximum fill-in-the-blank with minimum time. And that's, again, not your fault. You don't only have to do writing a certain way. You don't only have to produce it at a certain time. You don't only have to produce it at a certain rate. Your writing comes and goes. The time comes and goes. Your focus comes and goes. None of that's your fault. None of that's a problem. But you can't sit down and try to do it like you used to because you're holding yourself to an unrealistic standard, an unreachable standard for any number of reasons. Maybe you're up in your head too much now. Maybe you just don't have the time. Maybe both. You can poke some of this stuff with a stick. You can sit down. You can get coaching to talk about what's in your head, how to let go of some of those expectations. You can take a look at how you're organizing your free time to see if that'll affect your writing schedule. But you can't hold yourself now to the way you used to do things in the past. It's... It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you get where you want to go. Please make an effort to stop. On we go, though, to question two. What is something you learned as a coach this week? You know, I had a really good week. I had a really strong week since we, we spoke last. I had some fantastic meetings with some just amazing people producing just incredible stuff. Now, that said, there are some people who are... To put it mildly, on the struggle bus, they are most definitely having some hardship. They are most definitely having some trouble for lots of different reasons. They're not feeling well. They're overwhelmed at work. They're putting too much pressure on themselves. Lots of different stuff like that. But something I learned this week as a coach is that sometimes when I got to talk to somebody about a problem they're having, I end up talking to myself and they just happen to be next to me or they happen to be on the other side of the, of the Zoom call or something. Because if you come to me with a particular problem, let's say, I don't know, holding yourself to an unreasonable standard, that is something I have struggled with. That is something I continue to struggle with. That is something I will struggle with probably until whatever my last day on this planet is. So when I start giving advice, when I start talking about how it feels, and I start talking about how to, how to sort of have a, have a life in and around this expectation and how to wiggle it free like a little kid's loose tooth. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm talking about them and I'm talking about their manuscript, but really the thing I'm trying to communicate is what I wish somebody would communicate to me like 20 years ago when I first had these feelings really become predominant. I, I've said on Substack before, that's johnhelpsyourwritebetter.substack.com. It's free to subscribe. You should subscribe. Uh, I've said there before that when you write, whatever you write, you will meet yourself while you're writing. You will encounter your frustrations. You will encounter your imperfections. You will encounter your perfectionism or your desperation or your anxiety or your anger or your whatever. You'll meet yourself on the road. And it's not that I didn't think it would happen in coaching. It's not that I thought like, oh, well, that, that only happens to writers and I'm a coach. I'm on the other side. 
I knew it would. You meet yourself in lots of different interactions you have with people. I just wasn't expecting, I guess, this week to have it be so profound. To have it be these situations where I talk to somebody and I'm not entirely sure if like the light bulb went off for them yet. Like, aha, I'm, I, you know, good news, everyone. I've, you know, everything is great and all's fine and well. I don't think we're there yet in, in some cases. But for me, it, it left me thinking. It gave me something to chew upon. It gave me something to, to think about and, and make notes about and go to therapy about, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But it, it definitely fueled in me it definitely fueled in me a, a change in my approach. I, I get very theoretical, like crazy theoretical. I will tell you about theory and academics and, oh, here's this thing and here's this technical term and here's this and here's that because I love that stuff. It, it, makes me, it makes me so happy. The problem is that the deeper I get into those waters, because I, I love that water and I just assume everybody swims in that ocean, right? The deeper I get there... A lot of people can't keep up. It's not because they're bad people. It's just because they, they've sort of like, they've, they've kind of moved away from the point where they have a point of reference. And I'm out in abstract waters talking about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm connecting dots that they're, they're, they can see, but they don't really relate to. And it was pointed out to me in one of the most loving ways possible that I need to use more examples like actual grounded examples, whether that's examples in that person's work or in some kind of work that I know they've seen. And I thought about that, and that's, that's one of those things where I had to meet myself because to me, doing that is sometimes a little too obvious. Like, come on, how do you not understand this? Why, 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 why don't you connect these dots? Why are you not getting this abstraction? And, and the more I thought about it and the more I felt resistant to it, the more I felt like, oh, I don't, I don't want to give these examples. Like, what, isn't, that, isn't that bad? Like, isn't that, you know, bothersome that I have to slow down and explain something? And the more I thought about how just, like, snotty, bratty child that view is, I realized that my major issue is that um, I want to be taken seriously. I want to be taken as somebody who, like... Um, you know, comes across as somebody who knows what they're talking about because I've always felt, here's some John side of things, I've always felt like everybody thinks I'm a moron because I often call myself a moron or an idiot or something. And um, so the deeper I go into abstraction, the deeper I can demonstrate to you, like I went to many classes in school. I went to, you know, I, I read a lot of books. I asked a lot of questions. Um, the more I can demonstrate that, the more I think you'll like me, the more I think you'll, you'll understand. And, uh, real expertise isn't just regurgitating fact. Real expertise is transforming that fact into something someone else can relate to. It doesn't matter if I can tell you about, oh, well, in 1936, this guy said this thing and here's this book and this is what it looks like, blah, 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 blah. That means nothing to you. If I can't say, okay, you know in that scene where the two characters are supposed to be arguing and you're trying to build real tension, but they haven't said enough yet, but it feels like you want to get that tension across, this is a technique for doing that. If I can't build that bridge, if I can't cross that divide, uh, it's not really helping you. And my goal is to help you, literally in the job description. John helps you write better. So I learned I had to meet myself.
Not a bad lesson to learn. Not a lesson you learn like right away, but certainly, certainly something worth, you know, more exploration down the road. Something I'm sure will come up more and more today, in fact. On we go to question three. Question three. Isn't multiple simultaneous submissions a good thing? Wouldn't I want that? This question is referring to a thing in traditional publishing where a lot, the majority likely, the majority of publishers do not want you submitting the same thing, your query letter, your synopsis, your first 10 pages, whatever the hell it is. They don't want you sending your book out to more than one person at a time. And, and they swear it's because reasons, and they make up some horseshit reasons. They'll say it's like, you know, well, if we say yes, then we don't have to deal with other people. The problem is that's predicated on them saying a, a very big yes, and that's a very high hoop to jump through. The other thing they'll say is, well, you know, you, you, don't, you don't want multiple people, like, overlapping in them possibly wanting your stuff because publishers are selfish. The, the truth of it is they don't want multiple submissions because you might have options then. And if you have options, you might not pick them. You might go with company number two or publisher number four or go over there to publisher number six if let's assume they all say yes. And then all of a sudden, you have authority. You have control. You have some leverage because you can turn to publisher two and go, hey, publisher three is offering me this. Maybe I should just go over there. And that's a position publishing doesn't want you in because if you realize that you don't have to compete for their attention and you don't have to compete for their authority and you don't have to compete for like their approval, you retain a great deal of, of power. And, and they don't want that because then all of a sudden, company number one has to, you know, crack open the piggy bank to try to figure out how to keep you from going to company number two. And we've talked about this a billion times. Publishers do not like spending money. So, yes, from a writer perspective, it's a totally good thing. You want your shit, whatever it might be, out on every goddamn street corner, billboard, mountaintop, rooftop, mailbox, whatever. You want your stuff everywhere. They, I'm pointing, they don't want that because that makes their system not work. And you, even though you're going to probably tell me no, you're bigger and you're better and you're more powerful and you're more capable and you deserve better than their system. This kind of thinking is usually the stuff that gets me some hate mail because somebody somewhere is going to hear that and go, well, you know, traditional publishing, blah, 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 blah. They say something to the effect of traditional publishing is a system that's been in place forever. So was slavery. That didn't make that right either. So maybe it's time for us to question some systems. Maybe it's time to poke a few masters with a few sticks. Maybe it's time to consider that the way we do things now is not the same way we used to do things before, and all of a sudden we're back to that first question of holding ourselves to an unreasonable expectation and just hoping we can do better to match the past. But time moves forward. So maybe... 
just maybe, we could lighten the fuck up about submissions and help empower people to get books on shelves, if that's really what the publishers want. But that's a different question for a different day. On we go. I see people are here. Hi, everybody. Hello, chat. Uh, hello, YouTube in the future. Uh, hello, podcast people. I don't shout out the podcast people enough. You guys are awesome. Hi, everybody. Uh, are there any questions from anybody who's here who needs some help with something? Otherwise, I'm just going to sit here and drink a ton of water. Yes? No? Keep moving? All right, let's keep moving. Rock and roll. Question number four. What's something you wish people, well, it should be no, or what people knew about the process of editing? Okay. Okay. There's a couple things I'd like you to know. There's a couple things I want you to file away in your head. First of all, there's different kinds of editing. There's copy editing, which is kind of sort of the easiest way to think about copy editing is all the stuff that you should, your English teacher used to do with a red pen in class. A lot of circling, a lot of spelling, a lot of punctuation, a lot of formatting, a lot of sort of basic, super, uh, not superficial, but, but lighter end questions. Who's this? What's this referred to? That kind of that. Then there's line editing. Line editing is copy plus now we're going to start asking a couple questions about character development now we're going to start asking a couple not many but a couple questions about plot or a, or a question or two about scene description we're going a little bit deeper now we're starting to poke the story to see how things are coming together but we can go deeper still third level my level developmental editing where we're going to take the whole thing apart why are you using this word what is the sentence trying to say what about this character why is this a line of dialogue? What the fuck is up with the semicolon? All the things get looked at. It's far more comprehensive. That's the first thing I want you to consider. What kind of editing do you need? Do you need somebody just to kind of look at this thing and maybe question it a little and kind of poke it with a, with a visual framing stick? Oh, well, your paragraphs are this way and this, that, and the other. It looks this way. It's ready to go out the door. We just need to polish it up a little bit. Try a copy edit. Oh, I, it's a, I could use a copy edit, but also, I also have a question about maybe my plot's not working so well. Or I'm not sure this, you know, this character arc is a full arc. Well, that, that's where you need a line edit. Or is it more a case of, I don't know what the hell's going on. My book's all over the place. It's huge. It's, it's ten times the size it needs to be. It's got five million bajillion characters, and I don't know what to do. Or, or I got scenes all over the place. I don't feel like it's in any order. Or maybe it's something just real familiar to me. John, I want to be a better writer. What do I do? Developmental editing. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to know. And, and this is where maybe, you know, I'm going to watch my, num my view numbers dip. Strap in. This costs money because this is somebody's job. It's my job. It costs money. I, I do some for free. Absolutely. I believe everybody should do some pro bono. I think everybody should do something to help other people out without the incentivization or commodification of effort. 
You should just help people. But that that there's a line where all of a sudden it turns into, oh, like this is a job now. This is work. I have to like, you know, put on the nice hoodie or the nice t-shirt and go do things for more than like 10 minutes off the top of my head. It's a job, which means you're going to pay for it. And it's not cheap. It's not cheap. But that doesn't make it superficial. This isn't like, you know, just buying one extra piece of jewelry or getting that extra cheese on the burger. This is what you would pay a, a you know, a professional person who was doing you a service. Like, you're going to pay your plumber or you're going to pay your electrician or you're going to pay the guy who's putting the roof on the house or the car mechanic. Sure, you could, if you sat down with YouTube and a couple of hand tools, do these jobs yourself. Sure, you could. You might even do them really well. Who knows? But... A lot of people can't or don't want to or are overwhelmed by it, and that's fine. But please understand that if you're going to bring somebody in to help you, there will be an invoice attached to that. And those numbers are not insignificant in some cases. Now, people have payment plans. We can break things up. We can do it in pieces. We can, we can, there's lots of flexibility there, but you should know that going in. This is not a case of just, why isn't it easier? Why isn't it faster? Why isn't it cheaper? We'll talk about cheaper later for sure. But why is it this way? What exactly am I doing here? And editing takes time. At any one point, at any one point in any day, assuming I'm, you know, upright, kicking, and working, I've got multiple clients, multiple projects, multiple things all taking my time, all taking my attention. And yeah, some projects, even though they're paying gigs, even though they're, you know, longstanding things, some projects take more time than others. And I can't give you an accurate estimate. I mean, I can try my best and go, okay, you're first on my list. So I'm starting with you at, you know, 530 in the morning, or you're third on my list. I'm going to get you after I have breakfast at 830. Sometimes I can do that. But other times it's just, hey, you're on the list today and I will get you when I get you. It's not faster. Why isn't it faster? Because I have more things to do now. When it was just me and I was, you know, stealing food and, and just kind of working myself to death, sure, I'd get your shit done in two days. I don't want to do that anymore. It's exhausting. So it takes time. You're going to pay for it. It's not easy. Those are the things I would love people to know. Beyond that, it gets very technical. It's a lot of like, I use Word. There's a lot of comments. It's a lot of visual data coming back to the reader, which can be overwhelming. And uh, it's never intended to dissuade you from doing it. I'm not trying to like carpet bomb your manuscript so that you never want to be a writer again. I know it can look like that, but it's a matter of, hey, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to point out everything. Usually it's problems. Usually it's some small stuff and some big stuff and some huge stuff and some little stuff and everything in between. But I'm doing that so that we can see that there's stuff to work with. The real problem comes in when I don't leave any comments. Now that either means everything's fine or if I just highlight big giant sections and say like this scene doesn't work or I don't know what's going on here or this is just too much. That's where we get into real problems because in big blocks, to put it mildly, something is fucked up. 
it's it's a big deal. It's one thing if I just highlight like every fifth word and go, you don't need these adverbs. What's up with these commas? And there's a lot of that same thing over and over again. But if I can just highlight big chunks and just say, this isn't working. Why is this here? That's a more substantial problem. Don't get overwhelmed by the amount of red on your manuscript. Look at it in terms of, okay, a lot of problems, a lot of stuff going on. How do we get started? How do we work on this? How do I get where I want to go if this is what I've got? That's the best attitude. That's the best climate for people. And I wish more people would come to editing or even coaching with that in mind. As opposed to this kind of like strange combative. It's not even combative because I'm not always disagreed with. It's this sort of strange adversarial relationship where you're handing me this thing and sort of standing there and then you're going to, I guess, endure me doing things to it and you're real nervous as if I'm somehow commanding or holding a great deal of sway. And like if I make me, if I start marking things, that's somehow evidence that you shouldn't be doing it. That's, that's not my job. If you, you know, hire a plumber and the plumber comes to your house with a wrench and starts loosening fittings up and starts taking stuff apart and repairing it, that doesn't mean you should never use the sink again. It just means that right now, this sink needs service. That's all that means. And the same is true for editing. I wish more people would understand that. On we go. Man, it's like a small novel is a question. But it's one of it's probably, it might be my favorite question, maybe. Question number five. How do you reconcile the two sides of writing where, where you want, on one hand, to write really cool stuff, but on the other hand, you know you need to have things like mechanics and theme and structure? I love this question. So, uh, I need to tell you that these two things, these two hands of, of stuff, they're not exclusive, and they're not you know, in opposition to each other. You can have really cool stuff, and you can have mechanics, theme, and structure. And your mechanics, theme, and structure can also be the cool things. But you need to understand that this is a very symbiotic relationship between all this stuff. Your cool stuff, the, the giant robot mecha bear thing that you wrote, or the, the vampire that can turn into water instead of... A, a cloud of fog like that cool stuff is going to be made better when you bring in story structure elements like mechanics or theme or chapter structure your cool idea doesn't become less cool just because we're trying to get it to fit in a certain space this isn't a case of like a little kid putting on like a coat over a costume where like you don't want to wear the you don't want to wear the coat because it's obscuring the costume. This this isn't a matter of like you're ruining my cool thing by like making me making me dress it up a certain way. It's it's not that. It's hey, you have this cool thing. It's going to be even cooler when the reader can understand not only that you've described a cool thing. Oh, it has wings and fire and a flaming sword and shoots laser eyes and it's got like you know like potato skins that it constantly eats, you know, like it has really cool stuff. 
that coolness isn't weakened by the fact that you try to develop a theme like this is the loneliness monster and it you know it represents loneliness so when it shows up in the story it's really about the hero trying to understand how they can be okay being by themselves like when you apply that kind of structure to it when you apply that kind of thinking to it your cool monster with the lasers and the beard and the flaming this and the whatever's still cool Coolness hasn't gone anywhere, but now we're going to turn it into something more than just a cool idea. We're going to we're going to weaponize it. We're going to activate it. We're going to do stuff with it. So instead of trying to reconcile, that verb is kind of poking me here. Instead of trying to reconcile, like we have to kind of pick and choose how cool we get because we have this other theme and structure. Understand that all this story architecture stuff, theme, structure, plot, mechanics, character development, arcs, you know, subtext, chapter size, sentence length, all that stuff. All those things facilitate understanding the cool stuff to the degree you want to provide it to people. Because your picture in your head of like the monster with the flame in this and the plate of that and the wings and the, the, the claws and all that, your job is to get that picture in somebody else's head who doesn't have that picture already in there. So the tools like mechanics, theme, structure, subtext, all that stuff, help make that transmission possible and help get that picture out of your head and into theirs. That's that's the important job. And it's hard. So that's why we write more than one draft. And we hope that, you know, it gets worked on and we improve as we go. Beyond that, um, cool stuff's cool no matter what. And just like, you know, if we can use a sports metaphor, let's use a sports metaphor. Um, hitting a home run is really cool understanding that you can always hit a home run when the pitch comes in and you're holding the bat at a certain angle and you swing a certain way is also cool. It's just differently cool. That's something we're thinking about. On we go. Question six. Why isn't every part of the self-publishing process cheaper? I told you we were going to talk about cheapness and cheaperness here we go. Well, for one thing, it's a job. All those people you are contracting to go, and I, I hope you're using contracts, not just like, hey, could you do this thing for me? But um, all those people you are hiring to, to do the thing you want them to do, uh, they need to be paid for their labor because, well, everybody should be paid for their labor because, unfortunately, we live in a society that still prioritizes money because white people, but that's a different discussion for a different day. The point is, you're hiring people. Self-publishing isn't like this weird process where everybody's just kind of hanging out. It's not a commune. Self-publishing just means that instead of a different company, big building somewhere in some big city, managing all the moving parts of the publishing process, you're, you, in your house, from your desk, with your laptop or whatever, you're managing those parts. You're doing exactly the same thing the big company is, only now you're going to do it. So you're going to find the artist. You're going to find the cover designer. You're going to get the editor. You're going to handle the printing. You're going to handle this. You're going to handle the distribution or the upload or the maintenance or whatever. That's, that's a job. That's as much a job as the people who you've hired to do the small parts. It's expensive because, one, better quality work is going to cost you more money. And two, the 
services through which you contract these people, whether we're talking about something, you know, exploitative like Fiverr or whether we're just talking about like Amazon, they know you have to use them. They, they know like this is part of the deal. They're, they're not necessarily entirely parasitic, but they know that, you know, they have a foot in, you know, a finger in this pie as well. So they're allowed to charge you or, or take from the top, from the, from the money. They, they need to get paid too. It's the same for you as it is for big giant company X. It's expensive because we've let it become so. It's expensive because capitalism. It's expensive because nobody's ever stopped to question it. It's expensive because we never thought it shouldn't be. It should be. It could easily be. Uh, you, it, you, you just need to further disassociate from traditional publishing as a format and stop trying to look at them as a model and not so much be cheap and pay less, but pay more effectively. And, and that's a different way to view the expenditure of money and understand that if you, instead of trying to hire 10 people one time, try to find two or three people and, and hire them consistently and build a relationship that way as opposed to highlighting and spotlighting the diversity of numbers of people. Like, oh my God, look, I can get 20 people to do this thing one time for me. Yeah, but you could also get four people to do it five times for you or two people to do it 10 times if you're willing to bend a little on your calendar. You can build a better process. This is very doable. People just don't because they want to keep it very transactional both so they can get it done and also because we expect something transactional because that's what we've been traumatized to do. Other than that, um, the cost of living goes up. It costs more money to do less. Food, groceries, bills. Forget like luxury money and walking around money. Just the act of living costs more. So rates go up. Time goes up. Things become more pricey more exclusive shortages happen. So things like paper becomes harder to get harder to source. Printing takes longer. Shipping takes longer. Shipping becomes more expensive because gasoline is, is harder to come by because wars. So yeah, money. There's your answer. On we go. Any questions from anybody here? Shall we keep going? All right. Let's keep going. Question seven. How do I tell my friend their cover is horrible and that they should demand a better one from their publisher? When this question, this question got posed to me kind of late in the, in the process, my first thought was, can I see the cover? I, I, I would love to know what exactly this horrible cover is. Because in my head, I can imagine quite a few variations of horrible. Like if it's just badly formatted or the colors are all wrong or the font is atrocious or it's just, just visually upsetting. Like I want to know how horrible this horrible cover is. I think that's a pretty normal thing. But um, how, how, do you, how do you do it? You just go, hey, I saw your cover and... And I love you and I want to give you my honest opinion because that's what you come to me for. 
I think this cover is is atrocious. I think this cover is an absolute steaming pile of hot fucking shit. And I wouldn't take this from my publisher. Like, I don't know why they think or how they think this is acceptable, but when you compare this cover, the horrible one, to the previous covers or some different covers or other people's stuff, how how do you, how are you okay with this? That's not because you're a bad person, friend, but come on. How is this, hold up the horrible cover here, as good as this, hold up a better cover here. Just ha- tell them that it's okay to speak their mind, that it's okay to say, oh, wait, no, this sucks. Flag on the play if you want to use another sports metaphor. You know, timeout, and, and let's address this problem. They can do that. Just for the record, anybody can do that with your publisher. It doesn't have to be this person and their friend. If your publisher is doing a thing and you don't like it, you say something, period. It's not just because they're the publisher and they have, you know, they're in charge. Fuck that. It's the idea that they're putting this cover on your thing, and if this cover and your thing aren't really a good match, it's your responsibility as the creator of that thing, not just to sort of sit and take it, oh, you're right, i got to have this cover because you're the publisher. No. Your, your job is to find the best cover that represents what you're trying to put out in the world. So say something. Hey, friend. How does this cover, looking at whatever it might be, how does this cover match what you want? Is this what you want? Or is this what they handed you? Have you thought about, you know, how you would change it? What you would do different? Not... You don't have to step in and say, look, friend, I was thinking about your cover and this is what I would change. Like, don't do it for them. That's shitty. What you want to do instead is, you know, talk about how, like, um, they deserve better and how how you think their publisher kind of shafted them on this. And if you can bring up other covers, not necessarily by that publisher, but other covers in genre, you might be more persuasive. I'm assuming, of course, your friend is open to the idea of getting a new cover. If they're not, if they're just kind of like, oh, I've been dealing with this publisher and it's a big giant headache and I, I just want it over and done with, well, then, yeah, I, I guess everybody's going to have to deal with a shitty cover. There is also something to be said about whether or not the cover is actually garbage. Maybe it's just you. Maybe you don't like the fact that they put sparkles on it or something. And if that's the case, uh, just get over it. It's just a book cover. They're still your friend. There will be other books. There will be other times. And we can move on. But if the friend is afraid, hesitant to stand up to the publisher, yeah, tell them it's okay to. And if, if they don't believe you because you're, you know, you're already their friend, tell them me. A guy on the internet says it's totally fine for them to stand up to their publisher and say, hey, quit giving me shitty covers, do better, go. You're totally allowed to do that. On we go. Question eight. What determines how big, they mean word count, how big a manuscript should be? Is it the genre? Is it the premise of the story? It's a little bit of both. It's in part the genre. Genre is going to carry size expectations. Ah, you're writing epic fantasy, so you're expected to have over 100,000 and under 120,000 in most cases. That's the expectation. Ah, you're writing a romance novel. The expectation there is between 75 and about 90-ish. 
Now everybody's going to, you know, flex a little bit, go up and down two or 3,000 there. The, the floor is going to be around 70, but, you know, 81, 82, 85, 91, 92, you get a little bit of wiggle room there. But that's just the genre expectation. And that's going to do a lot of, especially in traditional publishing, that's going to do a lot of informing what people can expect and look for in the book. At 80,000 words, they know the story beats are coming in pretty much this order and pretty much at this pace. That's fine. It's not necessarily accurate for your work. But again, we're trying to create a set of expectations so we know more or less what to get into. And when things deviate grossly from those expectations, then we can act or react accordingly. The premise... The premise can be suggestive of size as well. Like if you're going to do this big, giant, you know, mega fantasy story with like there are 10 warring families and you're going to cover one character from each of the 10 as a different point of view character. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for a situation where, yeah, you're going to do a lot of writing. That doesn't automatically give you a permission slip. It's not like I'm doing a multiple point of view thing with five characters, so I... I, I am somehow allowed to do 190,000 words. doesn't work that way. The, the structure, the size limits, whether that's size minimums or maximums for manuscripts, exist for a couple different reasons. One, they do set expectations for readers. Two, uh, it's because giant books are either thought to be overwritten and bloated with stuff, or they're just going to be dense and hard to follow in the same way that short books are assumed to be very Spartan in their detail and very Spartan in their depth. And the, the writer is thought to be somewhat inexperienced or anxious because, oh my God, they were so hasty to get this idea out, they didn't really fill it in. There's also a more practical side to this in terms of physical manufacture of these books. Uh, more words means more pages and more ink both of which contribute to printing costs, whether it's more ink being just pricier to print, but also more pages means a bigger book, which means heavier, and heavier books cost more to ship. So by setting a certain size in terms of word count, we're setting also, depending on how we're printing it, a certain page count, which means we can estimate a certain weight for the book, which means we can figure out our shipping costs. That's, that's how this sort of comes into it. We dress it up with lots of other words like readability and, and reader interfacing, but it, it comes down to, on one hand, an economic set of decisions, and on another, on another hand, a set of expectations from readers. That's your, those are your determining factors for manuscript size. Universally, one of the only universals just to kind of run through all genre is that you want to try to get past 70,000 words and stay under 150. If you can get there, if you can stay within that very big range, you will you will find not necessarily zero complications in publishing, but you will find fewer obstacles to navigate because you won't have to try to sell somebody on, well, my book's short, but it's really good, or my book's really long, but it's really good. You won't have to get them past sticker shock as much. And you can focus on the nuts and bolts of the story past that. File that away for later. On we go to question nine. How does Grammarly make me a weaker writer? Well, other than the simple fact that Grammarly sucks on toast, 
Uh, I'm going to get a mouthful of water and then I'll follow this up. See, Grammarly makes you a weaker writer without you realizing that it's making you a weaker writer because it's giving you the illusion that it's making you a better writer because it's highlighting what it determines to be a set of errors. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not. Here's the thing. It's making you a weaker writer because it's changing something very fundamental in your understanding of what writing is, could be, and needs to be. When Grammarly starts highlighting, and Hemingway does the same bullshit, when Grammarly starts highlighting all these different problems with the structure of your words, it's coming from a place of, look, I want you to, I want you to pay attention to how you're organizing your language. The problem is that when it does those things, it's prioritizing an homogeni- a, a sort of homogenized, error-free kind of writing. And a lack of technical errors, no passive voice, no run-on sentences, you know, no vague pronouns, nothing like that, no comma splices, all that stuff. Error-free writing is not necessarily automatically better better understanding, better engaging, better descriptive, better quality writing, just because it has free of errors. What Grammarly is positioning you to do is think that error in technicality, error of manufacture, of production, uh, you know, how you typed it, those errors somehow immediately equally translate to descriptive errors. You were passive in this sentence. So therefore, when you describe the the monster that's hiding under the bed, you, you suck at it now, which is not necessarily the case. In the same way that your comma splice at the beginning of the sentence, at the beginning of the paragraph, just moments after the character says to the other character that they love them, that doesn't undo the relationship dynamic. That doesn't suddenly like stop my ability to perceive that character A just said a big heartfelt thing to character B. But Grammarly wants you to see, Grammarly wants you to think that the highlighting of your technical errors is what's making you a bad writer. And it is very possible that you are both technically unsound, meaning you're making errors while you're writing, but also narratively unsound or descriptively unsound. So, you know, that doesn't mean you're fucked from both ends. It doesn't mean like your everything is ruined. It just means, hey, we have to get you like at least a copy edit in order to get you to understand grammar better. But also we need to talk about your description. And we also need to talk about how you're laying stuff out. Errors of one thing do not mean errors of another. You can be incredibly descriptive, incredibly evocative, really engaging, and not give a dick shit about grammar. You want to be passive? Go be passive. You can pull passive off if you're also willing to really pursue stronger voice, for instance. And Grammarly doesn't do that pretty well. It doesn't manage those things. Grammarly is there to give you the illusion of those things by correcting production error. Which, first of all, you're taking a job away from an editor. How dare you? And and second of all... Um, we don't read books to see if they're error-free. We, we do that with widgets. We do that with vehicles. We do that for material product that serve like a, a non-creative, non-artistic function. We want to make sure that when we press the button on the microwave, it does the microwave job. But error in your book 
is not necessarily a reflection of what you've intended to do to put a movie in somebody's brain. And one of the worst things, things like Grammarly and Hemingway and uh, a rating system for books and stars and, and whatever other bullshit of the week is popular for talking about how good, air quotes, a book is, all of that stuff is making a priority of technical performance of typing or technical performance of understanding the language as opposed to being able to evoke an image. For me, for me, this is a John thing. I'm willing to bend on grammar rules if I can get a good story out of somebody. Because grammar is malleable. And if I have to cheat grammar or be a little passive to get a better picture in your head, ah, fuck it, I'm going to put that good picture in your head. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to remember that I wasn't passive, but you're totally going to remember the picture I put in your head. Also, just in case you were curious, a lot of those assholes who get on like Amazon reviews and start talking about how, you know, this is wrong and here's an error, they're not wrong. Grammarly is not perfect. Grammarly is frequently wrong in terms of, you know, functional passivity. There's a reason to use passive voice or, you know, elaborate metaphor. Hemingway hates, you know, extended sentences, but not everything needs to be highly digestible for business folks. And the fact that, oh, I'm writing at a sixth grade level. Okay, dipstick. Uh, look, chief, you, you don't need to write at a sixth grade level. You actually want to aim for an eighth grade level. And uh, in order to do that, you need to stop worrying about what level you're writing at and just produce the best writing you are capable of doing rather than pandering or dropping down to a low common denominator just to make it accessible for content. What you want to do instead is just do the best work you can do. And if that means some grammar has to be, you know, fiddled with or excluded or practiced, then so be it. But Grammarly is positioning you to focus on the wrong parts of this, which isn't helping you become a better writer. Grammarly is in the way. Don't do it. If you're worried about grammar, if you're not sure you're sounding right, go get coaching. Go talk to an editor. Go get some beta readers and see if they say they can understand what you're doing or see if the technical structure of your story is holding up rather than trusting a program. Because a program is not going to read your book. People are going to read your book. So go talk to people. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody here? That Grammarly thing really irritates me. The number of people who were like, I ran it through Grammarly. Great. I'm happy for you. That's so nice. I put on socks today. Like, what is it that you want me to say? Oh, that was good that you did it through Grammarly. I'm, we're still going to have to talk about your character arc. It, it is not a panacea. It's not duct tape. It's not going to fix everything. On we go, though. Question number 10. Literally, this question I wrote in, uh, somebody gave me this question today. Or was it late last night? But it became, a, it became a graphic today. Question number 10. How do I get the most out of an idea? I can make a decision about what to write, 
but how do I follow up on that and see the angles and connections? Now, there's more to this question, but I didn't want to like fill the whole screen with it. So if somebody has an idea where they, they understand, I do, oh, yes, I do want to back up a minute. I've always preferred a messier draft. Yes, that is a very good point. Uh, any editor, I don't care who it is. I don't care what kind of editing they're doing. They want a messy draft because they want to see what you're trying to do. They want to see, you know, like, I, I I, don't want polish. Because if, if you're handing me a polished thing, you know, I'll take your money. But um, I, I don't have anything to do. Whereas if you give me something that's that's clearly not working, I, I'll be able to help. I'll be able to explain to you, like, why it's not working. Messier is always better during an editing or revising stage. It's kind of like going to the mechanic with your car and say, hey, look, my car's not making this noise anymore. Could you take a look at it? It's not supposed to be making that noise in the first place, but hey, my car's working fine. Just like marvel at it. No, messy drafts all day, every day. I'm going to come back over here to question 10. I'm going to repeat question 10. How do I get the most out of an idea? I can make a decision about what to write, but how do I follow up and see all the angles and connections? Now, there's more to this. If you had an idea of like, I see, I know I, the movie Rear Window and the movie Paranormal Activity. How do I, how do I see all the angles and connections? Okay, let's use those as our example because it's a really, really good example. What you want to do after you make some decisions about what you're going to write is you're going to want to figure out what it is the thing is. So we're going to take Rear Window and we're going to break Rear Window down. The depth you want to break rear window down depends on what kind of person you are. I'm very crunchy, so I will break this shit way, way, way down into much smaller pieces than most folks, and that's fine. Most people can just get by kind of breaking it down into more or less a field document. When I think about this movie, when I think about this book, when I think about this idea, when I think about this fill-in-the-blank thing, Here's the stuff that comes to mind. Some of that's going to be specific. I think about Jimmy Stewart in a wheelchair. Some of it's going to be abstract. It feels claustrophobic. It feels tense. Some of that's going to be just, you know, color palette. It's an older film, so it's got that weird saturated brown thing going on. Or it's a Hitchcock movie, and there's an expectation that Hitchcock means horror and suspense. You just start making a list. Just start making a list. Get those characters in there. Get that theme in there. Talk about how it makes you feel. Talk about, you know, if you're picturing objects in your head, like I see a scene where a guy in a wheelchair is is like rolling his way backwards away from somebody. Put it on there. Make a list. Get everything out of your head as much as you can. It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be permanent. It's just a starting point. And then do it again for the other parts. So in our case, rear window. Just make a list of all the stuff you can think of for rear window. And then paranormal activity. All the things for paranormal activity. Note or, or pay attention to whether or not there's some overlap. For instance, tension appears in both. And a sense of claustrophobia. And a sense of panic. And a sense of isolation. And a sense of voyeurism. Because both movies, even though they're very different movies, have to do with somebody watching something else. If you haven't seen Rear Window, go watch Rear Window. It's one of the best Hitchcock movies. And Paranormal Activity, you know, the first one, not bad. Most of them, in fact, aren't bad. They're not going to, like, 
blow the doors off anything, but they're not bad movies. So if we do this, if we take our example, I'll show you the angles and connections because the angles and connections just come from that sort of understanding that there are common grounds between all our pieces. And the angles and those connections are just different ways to connect the dots. Here are the dots. Some of the, some of the dots show up in both places. We can find ways to connect to them. So if we have rear window, the, the store, and, and I don't know how Hitchcocky we want to get here, but if we have somebody who's stuck at home for some reason, they've got COVID, they busted a leg, they're, they're, they're on house arrest, you know, they're, they're just trapped in the house. There's a blizzard outside. They're trapped in the house and they've resorted to a level of sort of peeping on the neighbors. And maybe we want to just have it be very rear window and it's just somebody looking out their back window at the rest of the building in their neighborhood. Maybe that's it. Maybe we want to extend it across a longer distance. But it's still somebody watching other people because they have nothing else, no other option, nothing else to do. But now let's jump over to paranormal activity. Paranormal activity is all about watching people. So we have that in common. But paranormal activity is found footage. It's the idea that we're going to observe people through another medium. It isn't just like following characters around. We're watching videotapes or we're watching security monitors or stuff like that. So how can we incorporate that into our rear window voyeurism? We would do it like this. We would ask, okay, here's this idea. Here's that idea. How do we get these two ideas working together? For instance, Rear window and paranormal activity fit together very well because let's say you have somebody stuck in the house. Maybe they have COVID and you know, or there's a bad storm and they have COVID or whatever reason they're stuck in the house. They start putting on their TV and their TV, instead of just being the regular, you know, let's just jump on the internet and watch the streaming stuff. Their TV starts showing them different images from different houses. They turn on the TV and instead of watching, you know, Netflix or whatever, they're realizing they're watching a, a video of somebody in their kitchen. They're watching a feed in their bedroom when they try to change the channel. They're watching, you know, the dining room. They're flipping the channels and they're seeing different rooms in a house somewhere. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not quite what they wanted to watch. They were looking to watch, you know, Frasier for the umpteenth time or friends or something for the umpteenth time, but they get sucked into watching this, these people on the other side of the TV. And all I've done is taken this idea of watching people and extrapolate it. They're watching these different people and we're going to have different cameras in different rooms. So why not just make this different channels on a TV? I'm changing the channel. I'm watching different rooms. I get sucked in. I start realizing that I get audio. If I turn the speakers up a little bit, so I can hear and I can see and I'm observing these people. And sometimes it's a little racy because, oh, I can get the bedroom feed. And other times it's pretty humdrum because the house is empty. But then, because it's, you know, we got to swing over to paranormal activity. We got to bring in some paranormal stuff now. There's a birthday party, a sleepover. Uh, somebody, you know, gets some stuff to decorate the house and they bring home a cursed object or something. And all of a sudden things take a turn. And now we confuse paranormal activity with rear window, but on a different level. Because now we've observed people, and there's something spooky, but one of the key elements in rear window is a sense of fear and helplessness. Jimmy Stewart watches bad stuff happen, and he's got a bum leg in a wheelchair. What the hell is he going to do about it? No one believes him. So we can put that in our story. 
I'm stuck in the house. I'm watching this. I'm texting my friends. Holy shit, you guys, have you seen this new thing on Netflix? It seems to be this lady's house. And they have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And you start talking to your friends about like, hey, have you seen this? Did you watch this? Oh my God, this lady, you guys got to come over. So then more people come over and maybe they watch it too. Except things on the TV are getting real fucked up because there's, oh, did somebody just die? Did, did the car crash? Was there a fire? Is, is the kid in trouble? Who are these people? Are they real? Is this television? Is this virtual? We have to save them. We have to help them. Here comes that sense of helplessness. What are we going to do? Do we figure out this mystery? How do we, how do we solve? How do we figure this house out? We can't see anything. We're, we're stuck watching a TV monitor. And we develop the story from there. Those aren't all the angles. You can't think about this in terms of, I got to get all the angles and all the connections. You're just going to find a few and you got to let it snowball. And some of that snowball is going to be enthusiasm. Remember we talked about the cool stuff and balancing the cool stuff with structure. And some of it's going to be cool, no doubt. But other parts of it are going to be tempered by structure so that we don't end up like wandering so far afield and only making a disconnected list of cool stuff. Oh, it'd be cool with this. And oh, it'd be cool with that. And eventually we end up with a very cool Swiss army knife. It has a hundred thousand cool bits, but none of them are very big and none of them are very well organized. We want to have organization that is cool, which means we're going to make more decisions, which means we're going to straighten things out. And we're just going to snowball forward a little bit. And when we get stuck, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. We come back to our original ideas. We come back to the mood and the feel and the vibe and some of the base notes of the, the foundational stuff of our story and figure out different interpretations of it. That is how you get the most out of any idea. Side note, I would love to see Rear Window meets Paranormal Activity. Uh, you could also do this as a murder mystery. You could do this as a horror movie. You could do this as a psych thriller. You could do it as a monster movie. It has oodles of possibility you just go need you just need to explore them i hope that helps love that question thanks for asking on we go question 11 what is a cobbled in air quotes cobbled story okay this is sort of the flip side of our previous question a cobbled story is a story you have built at with the majority of it being pieces that are not new so let's say you dig into your elephant graveyard of discarded paragraphs, chapters, and drafts, and you realize that you can, you, with a little bit of changing, you know, a segue here, a new paragraph there, a new opening over here, a few changes in the scene, you can use your old stuff and repurpose it and kind of sort of tell a story. It's a very Frankensteinian's monster approach. We're stitching, to this, we're stitching pieces together with a minimal amount of change in order to tell sort of a complete story. And then we promise we'll go back from the beginning and, and smooth it all out later, whenever later is. That's a cobbled story. It is not necessarily the worst thing in the world because no one's going to know. And it's not the best thing in the world because if you scrapped some of these pieces, you probably scrapped them for a reason. And choosing to recycle while it is environmentally conscious and one of the few things we can do to save this planet, um, it is not necessarily the best approach. You don't have to go back and find a home for a thing. You don't have to like, I wrote this thing six months ago and I still haven't found what to do with it. Just delete it. Just delete it. 
you wrote it once, you'll write something new. You don't have to find a home for every wayward piece of creation. Cobbled stories are just built out of pieces you've already got. That's all. On we go. Question 12. What's a bread and butter writer? This is an older term that I've seen make a comeback on TikTok. I'm not sure how TikTok found out about it. It's not some great profound secret. It's just really old. Bread and butter writers are writers who write for a living and place a premium on production rather than quality. And I don't mean they're writing garbage on purpose. It's just that they don't have time. They don't, they're, they're not completely lacking care, but given a choice between getting the thing done and getting it out the door versus I'm going to spend years and years like hammering, you know, the hell out of one thing, they aim to get more stuff out the door. It might not be a great profound effort for them after a while. Let's go churn out 35 books in a, in a series, you know, within two months of each other. A bread and butter writer writes for their living in a way that is very plain. It's it's not it's polished to a degree in the sense that it's bread and butter, but it's not exactly like big, high, fancy, oh my God, we're going to knock the doors off of the establishment. I'm going to revolutionize the genre. I'm going to introduce you to some depth of craft. It's just, I'm just cranking stuff out, man. I write for a living. I write books. I'm I'm brute forcing a career and occasionally you find a bread and butter writer who is profoundly unwilling to pursue craft but most of the time craft and technique and polish and the artsiness of it become a secondary consideration because they're out there just you know chasing that green man they're just out here looking for how can i get this thing out quickly and sell it how can i do the next thing quickly and sell it and i'm not a They're not existentially opposed to me. It's not like bread and butter writers are my mortal nemeses. It's that it's a path that lures a lot of people astray. People want to write. They want to sell. They want to have that career in terms of high sales or long-term like shelf life. And they they want to make art. They want to produce things that have talent and skill and all this stuff. But so often they're at odds. They say that in order to do the real artsy shit, like they have to do that sort of like mainstream stuff first and then I can get artsy over there. They talk about this, but you see this with actors and stuff. Like actors will show up in some very mainstream comedies and then go off and do like an art house thing. That is not necessarily the formula you want to carry forward with books. You don't have to go write mainstream dull-ass romance so, so that you're somehow justified or permitted in writing a more like exploratory stream-of-consciousness second-person thing. You can crank out novels at whatever rate you want. You can produce work at whatever level you want. Bread and butter is actually a pejorative. It's actually a, a term of condescension where you are describing a writer who just produces to produce and isn't so much concerned with the the flair of it so much as it is wanting to have the production done. That's a bread and butter writer. That's an old term. It's from the 60, 50s and 60s. Um, I would not expect it to make a big comeback, but it is something you might hear if you're over there cruising TikTok. On we go to question 13, our last of the day. 
Oh, man, I thought we were going to go the whole day without talking about it. Question 13. Any words of support for someone doing NaNoWriMo for the first time? Yes, it's November, and that means so many writers are out here talking about, oh, my God, it's NaNoWriMo, which means I get to dust off some of my favorite things to say all year, like NaNoWriMo is killing you, like it's pointless. Like it's a waste of your fucking time. Like it's getting you to focus on all the wrong things. It, you can have an intellectual understanding that, of course, obviously novels are not 50,000 words. And you can have an intellectual understanding that um, it's about getting you just to write every day. And everything else, like character arcs, detail plot structure are important and you need to do them, but you're not doing them right now. And, and all of that's the wrong way to go about this. It is, it is completely, if I were going to teach somebody how to be a writer and not get them to worry about longevity, not even skill. Let's, let's hold skill for a second. Let's just talk longevity. If I were looking to make a, or if I were looking to turn somebody who wanted to be a writer into somebody incapable of having longevity at a serious level, who was just a really consistent, you know, I show up and I write, but I don't really improve my writing, I would have them do nano. I would have them do Camp Nano. I would have them do Summer Nano. I'd have them do fucking Nano on the Moon. Whatever Nanos there are, I'd have them do them because NaNoWriMo teaches you one thing. It teaches you that words have to go on the page consistently in order to accomplish a goal. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that is a given for every kind of art. You want to paint a painting? Put some art on, put some color on the canvas. You want to learn how to dance? Better get moving your legs. You want to learn how to bake? Better get in the kitchen. It's a given. But NaNoWriMo prizes this as sort of like the big centerpiece. And then they turn around and tell you about community. Community is great, except the vast majority of the people in that community are going to eventually turn competitive and be better than you and step over you. And yeah, not necessarily be the best people. And how much community is it really if I only see you one month a year? What's the point? NaNoWriMo does not teach you how to write better. It just teaches you to produce words, which is a skill you should have by default because you should just be writing all the time. Why wait until November to do this? Why do you need this arbitrary structure to sit down and make it okay to do this thing that you say is important to you? There are 12 months in the year. Use all of them. The other thing NaNoWriMo does is prioritize minimal effort, productive effort, as opposed to creative effort. And I understand that your question was about support. I'm getting there. But in, in prioritizing production... Just write. Just get the words on the page. 2,000 words a day. Go. 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 1,800 words. Whatever it might be. Get them on a page. That's the wrong approach. That is the straight up wrong approach. It doesn't matter. No one gives a shit. First of all, 50,000 words is half to two-thirds of where you need to be. So let's just get rid of the 50,000 words. Doesn't matter. How about we just get some words? How about we get 
not only some words, but some good words. How about we teach you how to write? How about we teach you character and introduction and development and pacing and theme and subtext and description and moving the camera and putting a picture in the reader's head? How about we teach you that instead of got to do 50,000 words, got to write every day because that should be a given. Also, writing every day is still a privilege for a lot of people. So how about instead of writing every day, we just get you to write when you can and that when you can, you do it to the best of your ability which means instead of prioritizing word count, we prioritize like craft. How about we do that instead? So you want some support. Don't care about 50,000 words. Don't feel bad if you take a day off. Don't feel bad if you take 10 days off. The words that go on the page, even if it's a first draft, need to be the picture in your head. If that means you need to spend two extra paragraphs to describe the the color of the chair or the way the car crashes into each other or how smug one person is in the middle of a fight in an elevator, well, do it. Just get it out of your head. Get it out of your head. Other than that, next year, don't do NaNoWriMo. Instead, January 1st, January 2nd, I'll give you the New Year's off, January 2nd, just try writing. Just try writing. And the 3rd and the 4th and the 5th and try writing. February 15th, try writing. Your writing should not be bound to a calendar. And I know that's like commodification heresy, but I don't give a shit. Your writing is your expression to this world. Your writing is your lens of your understanding and your experience and your creativity outward. Trying to, you know, box that up into a certain number of words per day for a certain number of days renders that creativity, that output, that want, that art, it renders it into, at best, a product, a box, like cereal, like cornflakes. When you're intending to make somebody part of a balanced, fun breakfast with sugar, they want cornflakes. It doesn't really matter who they is in this example. Just roll with me on this. The point is, NaNoWriMo is teaching you one view of one thing and calling it a day. There's so much more to writing. There's so much more to art. There's so much more to craft and care and Improving yourself, meeting yourself, discovering how you would say a thing that far transcends word count, that far transcends, oh, it's, it's day 17, doesn't matter. It does not matter. No one's going to know the day you wrote which words on which page. And even if they did know, they wouldn't care because they're not tracking your words They just want that movie in their brain. They just want to imagine the thing they see in front of them and hope that it matches the thing you intended to. No one cares how long that takes. There's a reason why some people got published like in their 50s and then had a career. That's fine. There's a reason why the gray list exists. So the gray list is a list of screenwriters who are over the age of 40. Yeah. It's not like people are only good at writing in their 20s and then if you, it's not like Logan's Run where you suddenly reach a certain age and they just sort of like blow you up or 
like Judge Dredd where they boot you out into the wilderness. Like it, it doesn't matter. If you're doing nano for the first time, I don't want you to care about structure. If you were genuinely doing nano for the very, very first time and your intention is to be a better writer, like you say that to yourself, what I want you to focus on, I don't care how many days it takes you, I want you to focus on two things. Every time you write a sentence, that sentence has to communicate something to somebody else's brain. It has to give them something to picture or it has to help describe a thing they've already known to picture. Or it has to give them something to hear or describe something to hear. It has to engage their imagination. Make sure every sentence does that. That doesn't mean sentences need to be short. doesn't mean sentences need to be long. They can be whatever size. But they've got to communicate that information in a way that puts something in somebody's brain that isn't just, hey, this person is telling me a story. Instead, aim to get the image, the video feed, the 4K IMAX, the mega 10.1 stereo. Aim to get the sound and the picture in their head. All that other shit, passive voice, reader framing, psychic distance, pacing, paragraphs, three-act structure, five-act structure. Anytime any of that other shit comes up, I just want you to come back to that position of, I'm trying to put this movie in somebody else's head. That's my job. And it'll take me as long as it takes me. It'll take me as many words as it takes me. And ideally, it's going to take me more than a bare minimum number of words. I'm not trying to do this as fast as possible. I'm not trying to do this in the fewest number of words as possible. My job, here's where you can talk back to the thing you're watching or listening to. My job is to put a movie in somebody else's head. That's what I want you to do for NaNoWriMo, especially if it's your first time. And then, by the way, if this is like your 10th time, what the fuck are you doing? I love you. Why are you doing this? You're better than this. Sit down and just write. If you want to, if you're, if you just miss your NaNoWriMo friends, go make friends with them in like March. Like just talk to them like people. Come on. What are we doing? New people? Just practice putting the movie in somebody else's head. Old nano heads, come on now. What are we doing? How long are we going to swim in a circle here? We going to do something or are we fucking around? Come on. Now, if you're new and you hear me say that, I don't want you worrying about that because that's, that's a down-the-road thing. Right now, you new guy, put a movie in somebody's head. Old guy, the fuck, yo. What are we doing? Come on. Come on. Let me introduce you, everybody. To a phrase my grandmother used to say all the damn time. That is a really great phrase to think about with NaNoWriMo. Ready? Shit or get off the pot. Very simple. What are we doing? You're going to put a movie in my head or not? You're going to write Nano for the 10th time? You're going to finish or not? Shit or get off the pot? Give that some thought. All right, ready? You want to get out of here? Let's get out of here. To the outro. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I really appreciate you being here. 
Thanks for letting me talk about my grandmother. Thanks for letting me talk about Nano. Thanks for letting me talk about Rear Window. I haven't talked about Rear Window in, an, in a hot minute. Thank you. Thanks so much. I hope you're having a good day. I hope you're writing. Uh, the next time I'm here in your eyes and in your ears, uh, remember that if you're looking for me this week, I'm not here Thursday and Friday of this current week because uh, I'm getting my COVID booster and I fully expect to be flat on my ass. Um, beyond that, uh, I will be right back here in your eyes and in your ears uh, all week with podcast. Uh, John Helps You Write Better, available wherever you get your pods casted. But I'll be right back here for the Writer's Chat next week, uh, November the 14th at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, as per usual. Maybe a workshop. We'll see how I feel. Um, other than that, thanks so much for being here. If you want to help, if you want to help writing better, if you if you need something more than just a few questions, uh, head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Sign up for a free uh, session. I'll be more than happy to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. And remember, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, click the bell, do all the YouTube YouTube things so that the YouTube monster is satisfied. Uh, all power to all people. Let's get out of here. Let's go do some stuff today. All right. Love you. Talk soon. See ya.